This is Dennis Ramundi. I'm here with my co-host, Phil Goldberg, author of American Veda, our podcast, Spirit Matters, found at spiritmatterstalk.com. Our focus, contemporary spirituality, and our guest today is Sridhar Stephen Silberfine, originally from New York. Uh, he has been in the movement for the development of consciousness and raising awareness for many years. Uh, he uh, is known, and I want to talk to you this about this today, for bringing uh, Swami Satchidananda to Woodstock. And I want to also say he's the founder of Bhakti Fest, which is a tremendous festival held every year. Uh, but more on all that as we go into the interview. Thank you so very much for taking the time to come on today, Sridhar. Uh, thank you for having me. It's a pleasure. Look forward to it. Sridhar, you've had, um, uh, gosh, not to give away our ages here, but uh, you you go back in the world of yoga and meditation and um, Indian spirituality for back to the uh, early mid '60s. Yeah, it's been around 50 years. <laughs> and um, well, yeah, it's the 50th anniversary of the Summer of Love now, and. Um, so you've had a lot of experiences, and we'd love to explore that with you. But uh, let's begin with a little background on you. I know you could talk for an hour just about your own experience, and we'll get to that. But um, you have Bhakti Fest coming up in September, uh, and we want to call our listeners' attention to it. Um, tell us what the origin of Bhakti Fest was, uh, and you can bring in your previous experience in that context. Yeah, good. Uh, well, uh, <clears throat> actually, that goes back to the Woodstock story, which I might as well get into now. So um, when I was hanging around with Michael Lang and Artie Kornfeld in New York in the late 60s, uh, they, you know, we used to go over to their house and hang out and discuss things. And one day they said to me, Srita, what do you think is missing from the the new festival that we're putting on. Um, I said, well, you got every name or to be great name because a lot of people were just going to be discovered then. And uh, But you're missing the spiritual element. And they said, what do you mean? I said, there, I had one in mind. And uh, to do the invocation, they said, okay, you produce that segment. So I went over to see Swami Satchitananda, who was my yoga teacher. He was my yoga guru at the time. I met him in uh, 1968 when Peter Max brought him over to uh, the country. He eventually created Infigo Yoga Institute and was a big uh, forerunner for Hatha Yoga here in America. Um, he said, Swami, uh, you're invited to come uh, to do the invocation. He said he didn't even know what Woodstock was. And I explained it to him. So we flew him up in, by helicopter. All this now that I'm saying, you'll it's actually in the movie in the director's cut. So we flew him in on the helicopter. We got out. We're in the back area getting, uh, discussing it. He's resting in the tent and stuff like that that we had set up. And the original, the uh, Woodstock was very late in starting, um, a couple hours late. And one of the reasons was that uh, the first group that was supposed to open up Woodstock got on the stage and got so panicked and so fearful that I ran off the stage <laughs> and I ran into the bushes. And a lot of people don't know that part of the story. Because no. <clears throat> nobody ever revealed who that was. Anyhow, they grabbed Richie Haven and they got him up on the stage to warm up and str strum up and get his guitar tuned in. And uh, you see me walking on the stage with Swamiji. And uh, at that moment, I realized there was nobody to introduce Swami. 
so I said to, you know, I was a young kid then, and I didn't know too much. Uh, I said to uh, Richie, Richie, do you mind introducing uh, Swami Satchanan? He looked at me. He was sweating bullets. Said, Get the fuck out of here, kid. Leave me alone. He, he was so panicked himself, right? Right. But then he went on, and then right after he went on, Chip Monk, who turned out to be the moderator, uh, he announced that he introduced Swami. We had a beautiful invocation. It's up on the uh, e- uh, website of uh, the old Woodstock Festival. Anyhow, it's uh, and then we stood in the back looking at the crowd, and I said to him, Swami, someday we're going to have these amount of people chanting the names of God. And he said to me, I hope so, Sridhar. And we segued in 40 years later, almost to the day. We started in September, uh, and the festival was in August, and we created the first Bhakti Fest in 2009. It, well, it's a great story. It's well, a, and, and you, you um, haven't yet reached the 400,000 mark, at, uh, but, <laughs> but you get a few thousand people every year oh, yeah. out to the desert, man. Mm-hmm. Yeah, well, we have two festivals a year currently in Southern California. Next year we're going to be expanding to more, but we have a festival in May called the Shakti Fest, and that's a six-year-old festival that I wanted to make more... Uh, for, for the goddesses, for the women. Mm. Mostly all the presenters in Shakti Fest in May are women, women yoga teachers, women music act, women workshops. And um, I, I created that for that particular person uh, reason. And then our festival, which is uh, the Bhakti Fest in September, is nine years old. This is our ninth anniversary. Next year we're looking forward to our tenth anniversary, which is really going to be a big, big blowout event for us. Mm-hmm. So Sweetheart, what, what we kind of, yeah, go ahead. I'm sorry. No, go ahead. So we're, we're, we're known for like a number one conscious gathering of yoga and sacred music in the country. I mean, there's other copycat festivals, but this is a real spiritual festival, meaning we don't have alcohol. I've been approached by alcohol and wine companies throughout the ages to come and let them vent. And I said, no, because we need to have a place where we don't do what we do every single day. We need to go to a gathering, to a, a, a movement, a festival, that we don't have to get drunk or stoned to really see the potential of what we have inside of us. And uh, we're an all-vegetarian festival. We're actually the only one that uh, prescribes to that. And these are things that I feel are very, very important for people to maintain and develop a deepening spiritual life. And by that I mean, you know, a discipline, you know, which we really all need to maintain because in today's world it's so crazy and it's it's uh, so convoluted and the government is not for the people, the corporations are against the people. I mean, we're living in a very isolated situation as individuals. So to come to an, uh, an event that's built on spiritual community is very, very important, and that's what we maintain, and that's what we'll always maintain. Mm-hmm. Sridhar, I, I was reading about you, and one of the things that was fascinating is back to your uh, beginning of your spiritual journey. You were experimenting, like many people back in the early 60s, with psychedelics and, and that sort of stuff, but it was actually your aunt, somebody from the previous generation, who uh, turned you on to meeting uh, your first uh, spiritual teacher. Tell us about that. Yeah, that was an interesting time. I had uh, just graduated college in 1962. I didn't know what I was going to do. I eventually moved out to California Mm -hmm. for my first time at that point. 
but in 62, she said to me, why don't you go see this guy, Rudy? Because hmm. her son was studying with Rudy. And I said, okay, fine, I, I'll go down. And he had this uh, really incredible oriental art and antique <laughs> store downtown New York. And when I went in there, I just had an amazing experience. And then he invited me to stay that night for his class. I didn't know what to expect. But it, everybody went upstairs to the second floor. And in that room were pictures, big, huge pictures of gurus, specifically Bhagavan Nityananda and Swami Muktananda. But when I saw this big blow-up picture of Bhagavan Nityananda from Ganeshpuri, India, uh, I immediately felt a sensation going through my body, which later on I realized that I had received Shaktipat from a picture. Mm. And then Rudy had his class, and he had this eye meditation where he, he would cast his eyes and his glance to everybody, and you had an experience in that class, and I had one. And then I left, uh, you know, and went on my business to go move to, to California. But in 1964... Uh, I actually was a smuggler at that point. I must, I must add <laughs> that uh, because uh, that's usually that's usually not in my bio. But I'm, you know, at this point, I'm revealing everything to everybody. The statute of limitations has passed. Really. Correct. <laughs> and I'll tell you the reason why that is important because <laughs> I was uh, one of the first marijuana smugglers from Mexico. I would smuggle in like twenty, thirty keys a week. In 1964, I would drive down there, and, and that's a whole long story. You'd have to read it in my book. I probably bought from you in 1965. I'm sure you did. And then I would <laughs> ship everything to New York, and my distributors there would, and yeah, I was making like $5,000 a week in 1964. So, I mean, we were way ahead of uh, the curve then. And then I said, I think it's time to just pack it up and, and go over to Europe. So I grabbed a friend of mine in New York, and we flew to Europe. I paid for everything. We're traveling around, and we wound up in uh, Morocco. Um, and I, I went up to the hills of Morocco called the Reef Mountains. That's where the word Reefa comes from. A lot of people don't know that, but mm. it's in, nor in northern Morocco. Um, and then I went up there, and I brought down a couple of hundred pounds on muleback into a little town called Tetuan, uh, northern Morocco, and I had these guys chopping this up and making it into almost powder so we can bring it over across Spain to England and we were going to make hashish out of it. Um, long story short, we get on the boat to go back over the, uh, the ferry over the, the Straits of Gibraltar and we get to Spain, but they were obviously waiting for us on a tip-off and <laughs> we got arrested and we got put into, uh, into prison and uh, they only wanted one of us. My friend was flipping out. I was thought I was going to be the big shot, of course, and, and you know take the rap for him, which was a big mistake. But that's part of the comic dance. And uh, so, <clears throat> finally, my uh, it was interesting because I was in five different prisons while I was in uh, Spain, really hardcore prisons. Because during that time, 1964, the dictator Francisco Franco was still. Mm -hmm, doing mm -hmm. his thing in Spain, and it was a very brutal brutal regime. So people were not taking very good care of, especially in the prison system, I must say. So rather than get into too much detail, when I was first in solitary confinement, for two weeks straight, no shower, no bathroom, nothing. I had a hole in, my, in, the, in the pit of the cell, and there was no bed. It was 
uh, iron thing uh, to sleep on with a thin little tiny mat, but in the mat was filled of these very serious bugs, and they got all underneath my skin from head to toe, and I was scratching my myself bloody. I was a bloody mess, and I realized at that moment, Stephen was my name at that point, I said, either you're going to really go deep inside yourself and uh, figure this out, or you were going to commit suicide. And at that moment, I remembered that class that I went to huh. from Rudy from like, you know, uh, a year or two earlier, a couple of years earlier, and I applied some of those meditation techniques that I learned really quickly. I didn't know what any of that was. But I went deep inside, and I, I managed to survive and uh, that period. And then it turns out that my uncle was partners with uh, Congressman Emanuel Sellers hmm. from, from Brooklyn, and he was in charge of the uh, House Armed Services Committee. And his best friend was the Marquis de Val, who was the ambassador from Spain. He called him up, and he said, just take him out on bail, and we'll work it out. And Marquis said, there is no bail system in, in Spain. <laughs> Once you get in there, you mm-hmm. never come out. And he, he asked them to make an exception. I was the first person in the history of Spain that was let out on bail of $183 or something like that. And my father came over. He was a New York Jewish businessman. And he sees me on the opposite side of the uh, of the um, gates when he came to visit me in prison. It was a very sad moment for the family, and I'll bet. you know, it was a very powerful thing. And so I, I got out on bail. I got to, um, I got to uh, Madrid, and we were staying at the Hilton Hotel, and and we were waiting for the trial, which was supposed to come up in a couple of weeks. And our lawyers were, and I said, Dad, you know, I'm really tired. I want to go down. I'm going to go down to the Canary Islands for a couple of days and rest. Uh, call me and let me know, or I'll call you, and we'll figure it out. Uh, there was no cell phone, so that, you know, I, I would have to find my place and then call him. So I was down there for a couple of days on the beach, and three or four days later, I see, you know, I'm hanging out with some people I met and doing the same things I always did at that point um, of my life. And then I see some guy walking down the beach in a suit and a tie, and I'm making fun of the guy. I said, who's... And he got closer and closer. It's my father. <laughs> and I run down to the beach. Dad, what are you doing here? He said, we need to pack up and escape immediately. They're going to give you six years and one month and one day as your sentence. We just heard from the lawyer. So we went back to the hotel. We packed up our bags, and we flew from Canary Islands to Lisbon, Lisbon to the Azores, the Azores to uh, JFK. Wow. Uh, turned out that when they let, let me out of prison the last time, they gave me the envelope that I came in there, which was my watch, my ring, and my dollars I had in there, but the one other thing that they gave me back was my passport. passport. Yeah. Right? They, since it was the first person out on, on bail, they didn't know anything uh-huh. about keeping passports, <laughs> and that's how we got out of there. And well, you've made history, Shridhar, in more ways than uh-huh, one. Uh-huh. Um, so you mentioned Rudy. We should let our listeners know that Rudy was um, Albert Rudolph, a Brooklyn boy who was one of the really early adopters of uh, Indian spiritual teachings and um, became Swami Rudrananda, a.k.a. Rudy. And I'm one of the, I discovered, you know, who he was many years later. I never met him because he passed in the early 
70s in a plane crash. But I, rem- <laughs> I must have walked past his uh, import shop, uh, Asian import shop with the Buddhas and everything, right. hundreds of times mm-hmm. growing up in New York City, you know, and uh, I had no idea what was going on upstairs in all those years. But now Rudy was the person um, who brought uh, Muktananda here, and you were part of that. Yes, so that's a good segue into that next uh, piece, which was I started studying with Rudy also in 1968 again when I moved. I After I got out of prison, I was really, really at the low period of my time, and I was living out in Long Beach where I grew up with my mom and dad. And one day she just went into New York and came back and said, okay, you're moving to New York. She, I said, where? I got you an apartment on 72nd Street in Central Park West. <laughs> That's a good neighborhood. To me. I, a big I, street, yeah. Yeah, in January 1965, I moved in there, and it was the penthouse of the Oliver Cromwell Hotel, which was right across the street from the Dakota, yeah, yeah. where mm-hmm. John Lennon got assassinated. Right. And uh, I had an apartment on the top floor that, at that point, was $150 a month. Wow. <laughs> And I moved there, and uh, I got, uh, got, I did many things. I was a movie maker, and I started a. Uh, uh, then I got into the real estate business, and that's really what I, uh, what I did for the major five years uh, that I was in New York. But at the same time, I was still maintaining my hatha yoga studies with Swami Satchidananda in the Woodstock piece. But in 1965, 66, I started studying with Rudy again. And then around 1968, it was decided that Muktananda would come into the America in 1970. So we all chipped in and put monies together in a big bowl and eventually came up with $10,000. Muktananda came over with his entourage and uh, Labor Day weekend, and we had the first program up at Big Indian at Rudy's Ashram in Big Indian, New York, and Labor Day weekend. And that's who was there at that point was Hilda Charlton. Ramdas, uh, Swami Venkateshananda, and a whole bunch of other people, not a lot of people, and I found myself sitting there. And um, that first couple of nights, I was, uh, I, you know, they invited me in to sleep in Muktananda's bedroom on the floor by his feet. Mm-hmm. And uh, I had an amazing, amazing experience with Muktananda. He was my first guru, I must say, and I was with him from 1970 to 1982 when he left hmm. his body. Um, and at that point, he uh, turned around to me and Ramdas and said, I want you guys to organize our tour, my tour around the U.S. in 1970, and I didn't know organization, but I didn't even know Ramdas. And I looked at him, and he looked at me, and we got thrown into the pot together, and um, we've been friends ever since, that, uh, really intimate friends, actually. Mm-hmm. All right, terrific. Sridhar, <coughs> you became one of the... Uh, yoga teachers at the uh, Integral Yoga Institute. At, it was 500 West End Avenue. Uh, what was that Correct. like then? And, and at that point in your life, were you like, okay, I'm really committed to being a yogi. I'm going to clean up my life. I'm going to live this lifestyle. I'm under the influence of Satchitananda and all these other uh, spiritual people. Uh, was that like a big turning point? Or, you, or was it still a process where you were going back and forth between your old world and the new world? 
Well, I've always been in the old world and the new world <laughs> because you can't give up right. the old world because the old world and the new world are the same. But yes, <laughs> I did make it. I did make a commitment to going deeper in my in my sadhana. At that point, I I became a vegetarian, and to this day, I'm still a vegetarian, almost like fifty some odd years later. So. Uh, I'm and I've been hardcore because when I moved to California in 1970, I actually started the first natural food store in Southern California, uh, in Topanga Canyon, and I maintained that store for mm. 12 years. And it was a very uh, real. It came to everybody came to that store because it was a model of how to live your life with better food and better uh, understanding. Um, I'll segue into that later, but yes, that was. A time that I decided that yes, I'm, you know, I want to devote my life to spirituality. I really feel that uh, that's the w- that was the way for me, you know. And I didn't want to tell anybody else what to do uh, because everybody has to find out these things on their own. You can suggest, you can give guidance, but we're not changing anybody, and nobody's changing us. So all that comes from within. So, Sridhar, um, now you're in the ninth year of uh, Bhakti Fest, and um, you've been observing the spiritual scene in America for 50 years um, or more. Um, I'm curious uh, what your uh, observations are about how um, things have changed. What is the current generation? You get a fairly young crowd at Bhakti Fest. In fact, maybe you could tell us you know what who comes and what the demographic is but how is this current generation of spiritual seekers and participants different from our generation in the 60s well they're trying <laughs> this generation is uh, is is actually trying but no nothing will compare to the openness and the understanding that we had in the 60s because we really you know the government can, can, couldn't control us we we were just really free to do whatever we wanted to do, and basically that now that's not happening. We're in complete control and domination by the governments, by big corporations. They're telling you everything to do from how to eat to how to sleep to what to watch, and this technology really... I mean, the younger generation has a chance, but if they continue to adhere to the technology that's put in front of us, there is no chance for anybody, because instead of spending, you know... the 10, 12, 15 hours on phones and emails every single day. Take some of that time to do meditation, to do japa, right. you know, to listen to some music, to read some spiritual books. I mean, there is, nobody's reading anything. <laughs> I, what, are the people coming to Bhakti Fest different in that regard? A little bit. Mm-hmm. What they, the reason they're coming to Bhakti Fest is because they right. want to dive deeper. They want to, they want a program. They want to, uh, they want to get on a schedule. They don't want to maintain themselves this way. They don't, people don't even want to leave when Monday comes along. They're asking us, "Hey, can we hang out here and stuff like that?" We got to shoo them away because, uh, you know, we we have a contract with the with the retreat center. Mm. But anyhow, I, I tell people, take what you get here—the love and the compassion and the service—and to help other human beings. That's the key. That's uh, of all the things that I've learned in my in my whole life was how to help other human beings, how to do seva, S-E-V-A, which means service in Hindi, and how to do more of that. That's why we definitely take a portion of what we receive every festival and give to some of our charities, uh, mostly in India, 
because it's so important that we, we, we forget about taking care of each other. That's really what it comes down to, is forgiveness and taking care of each other. You know, mm-hmm. that we have to forgive each other for past situations that we've done to each other because none of us are saints. We're all still learning. We spend our whole life learning, and we make mistakes, and we make errors in, in judgment and make uh, assumptions and gossip all the time, and we have to say, you know, I'm sorry if I hurt you in any any way, shape, or form by anything I've done in my words, deeds, or action, and please forgive me, and I forgive you for anything that you've done to me in the same way. So it's a two-way street, and I think that's a very important place to visit when we're having a disagreement with anybody else or in us in our relationships or with our kids or our parents and stuff like that. Sridhar, I'm wondering, at Bhakti Fest, uh, you have a, a number of uh, really fabulous speakers. And by the way, for our listeners, uh, you know, we have it all posted up on our uh, site here where the podcast is about uh, Bhakti Fest and uh, other uh, uh, things that are mentioned on, on the, uh, in the interview. But I, I'm wondering if there's, uh, we know who the, uh, the, the gurus were that emerged in the 60s and the spiritual teachers. Are there any new, younger uh, teachers that are emerging that are gaining in popularity that maybe Phil and I uh, don't know about? Yeah, definitely, you know, uh, and we tend to invite them. We're the, actually uh, one of the few vehicles that some of these new people can uh, mm-hmm. can come and, and give a talk to or have a workshop and have people spend time with them. One of them is Radna Swami, who uh, is an ex-Jewish guy from Chicago. We've had him on the show. Oh, Fa- fabulous guy. Yeah. Phil and I have both met him. Tremendous human being. Yeah. Great book. Uh, lovely person. One of my dear, dear friends. And yeah. uh, he just came out with his second book. He's been coming since the beginning. I met him through a real deep friend of ours called Shamdas, who introduced me to India. And I go, actually, I go spend time with him in India once or twice a year. Mm. He comes here. I just was with him in L.A. Uh, a week or two ago before I went to Toronto. Um, and this year we have uh, Prem Baba coming. Uh, Baba is a newer sensation from Brazil. Uh, he started off as a therapist, a psychologist, and uh, then he incorporated ayahuasca in his teachings and went to India, had a profound uh, realization, and now he's mixing the ayahuasca with the Eastern uh, spiritual uh, understanding. Uh, but not too much ayahuasca while he's here in the U.S. <laughs> no alcohol, but ayahuasca. No, he's not even <laughs> doing that either. And he's not, you know, of course, nobody's allowed to do any yeah. that. Not allowed. You know, we don't monitor that. But people don't need that when they come to Bobby. Yeah. yeah. Uh, but anyhow, he's coming, and he's going to give four days of workshops mm-hmm. and lectures, and, and, and that should be great. It's, he's... Mm-hmm. He spends a couple of months in India where he has programs every single day in India in Rishikesh where, you know, 1,200, 1,300 people come every day. So he right. has a really good message. He's <laughs> got a lot of love and a lot of compassion. I, I like him, and I wanted him to come. Speaking of... Let me, of so I just let me follow up on that. Yeah, I just, go wanted, ahead. To, I just wanted to mention that you mentioned Radhanath Swami, and before that you were talking about how, you know, service to other people, helping other people is an important part of spirituality. Well, what we've noticed in a number of people we, we've interviewed, uh, and, and Radhanath Swami is a prime example of this, is that here's somebody, he's on the international board of uh, the Hare Krishna movement, uh, he's a, a, a monk, he's deeply involved in his spiritual practice, but he also runs a nonprofit every day that feeds, I think, over 200,000 kids lunch 
in Mumbai, in India every day. So uh, it's an example of, of what you were talking about. Go ahead, Phil. Yeah. Absolutely. He's, he, you know, it's one thing to pay lip so service to, to service, lip service to service, because that's what most of everybody does. But to, to be out there and actually are actively doing that without looking for anything in return. Right. And that's what real karma yoga, that's what real service is all about. You know, we, this is, you can't get, everybody knows, you know why Wanderlust, who I love, uh, they stopped having kirtan at their festivals, and I asked Jeff, who is the producer, I said, why did you do that? He says, there's no money in kirtan. <laughs> and yeah. they're a very money-orientated festival, and that's why they have big sponsors, and they make huge amounts of money from this. Mm. We don't have that. We have small sponsors. We're very select. We won't take any monies from anybody that we don't believe in what they're doing, and vice versa. And um, you... you this is not a festival that anybody's going to do to get rich because n- nobody is. And then we're very fortunate that the grace has bestowed uh, a longevity to our festival because we have actually maintained a, a, a proper way that I think is the reason why it's successful. I have a question for you about um, gurus. You are one of the rare people who have known a lot of gurus over the course of your years and a lot of uh, spiritual teachers, probably a number of uh, self-proclaimed enlightened masters. But you've gotten to know them not just as a person in the audience when they do satsang or give a discourse, but you've gotten to know them because you've had to do business with them, you've traveled with them, you've hosted them. Um, What should people know about gurus? What have you learned over the years about gurus and spiritual teachers and the human beings uh, that they are? Right. Well, first, uh, there's a big difference between teachers and gurus. Okay? Mm-hmm. We're all teachers for each other, but there are very rare moments that a real guru appears. And uh, when the disciple is ready, the guru comes. And when the guru is ready, the disciple comes to them as well. And so it's not necessary that everybody needs to have a guru in their life. I just happen to have chosen that path for myself, and that's what I've always concentrated on, the guru-disciple relationship. It's always worked for me. It's a hard road because if you have a real guru, they don't take any shit. And, you know, when when I was living with Muktananda in Ganeshpur, he carried a stick around. And if he saw your ego was out of line, you got that stick. I mean... (laughs) He didn't beat people, but he gave you a nice hit that you would realize what you were doing was not correct. And, you know, I've gotten that from Amma a number of times. Mm. Uh, by the way, Amma is my guru, and I've been with her for 30 years. I mm. uh, just, celebra- just celebrated 30 years together. And uh, she is, for me, the highest presence on the planet, The high, certainly the highest female presence on the planet. And, uh, you know, that, that works for me. Now, a lot of people come to the gurus and they see stuff going around the gurus, uh, which are the regular people, which I tell everybody, when you come to see a guru, don't 
have anything to do with anybody <laughs> standing around Alma or working for her because you're just going to get caught up in the same stuff and you'll become disillusioned. Mm-hmm. You're going to see the guru. That's all you're going for. Nothing else because the shit is still there. Right. And it's really compounded because things come out in front of the gurus because <laughs> that's what they're supposed to do, right. uh, bring up all the shit. So Alma says to people when they ask, Alma, I want to come to India, to your ashram. She says, you want to come to Alma's Mental Institute? Come on. Sridhar, I want to ask you along these lines of gurus and guru-centric movements that uh, over the years uh, uh, there have been a number of gurus that have been involved in scandals, either, you know, sexually exploiting people, financial things, whatever. Maybe some is real, maybe some isn't real, we don't know. But if if in those occasions when that, that does that happens, the, the, can somebody still ha- be a, considered a guru and have flaws and faults like that? Uh, or is a, uh, to be a guru, does one have to be uh, beyond all that? It's a question that comes up to us a lot. I know, and that's a really amazing, fantastic question. And, um, you know, when I was with Muktananda for 12 years, he fell from grace because he had some... Uh, dalliances with younger girls, okay? And then after he left, people used to ask me that question. How could you stay with him when you saw that this was happening? I said, you know, I'm with the guru for deeper personal things that I get from them. Everyone has to take a shit at the end of the day um, or during the day, whatever, and they all have to eat. And uh, nobody's sitting on a a platform that their God reincarnated. I don't go for that one. Mm-hmm. And so, therefore, you have to look at everything, and you certain things are going to come up, and it's going to, how is your going to, reaction to that going to be? Are you going to be in a place where, oh, my God, they, they committed such a sin, I don't want to have anything to do with them? Or, again, you can, because you're getting so much from them, mm-hmm. that I said to myself, you know, it far outweighs what I'm getting that he fell from grace when he just be, you know, like the year before he died, he was seventy-two, uh, and then eighty-two, he eighty-two. Well, whatever it was, uh, well, so Muktananda was seventy-two when he died. Yeah. Oh, at his age, you mean? Yeah, yeah. Oh, I'm sorry. Okay, yeah. Yeah. And I, it was in nineteen eighty-two, yeah. and I said, uh, I got so much from him that the other stuff didn't affect me. It did affect a lot of people, however, and. This does affect a lot of people today because they're just not ready in their development to be able to assimilate, to understand it. And I'm very compassionate to that. And I do tell people because when we lived in Topanga, we had the Center for Spiritual Studies, which was the hosting nonprofit foundation that hosted all the Indian gurus that came to America throughout the 70s, 80s, and 90s. They came to our place, and we saw everybody from... Everybody was there. You know, we hmm. said Muktananda, Sachinanda, but Yogi Bhajan came when he first came to America that first week, and everybody came. Hmm. Amma stayed there for 17 years. So it was a very, and so many swamis and gurus throughout the ages. So we've had intimate contacts with a lot of them, and a lot of them have tried to come, current-day people that have tried to come and ask to be on bhakti festing, and we've declined. Mm. because there is too much controversy mm. around mm. Uh, those people. Uh, you know, like, it's a difficult area, and I'm glad mm. you're uh, asking those questions. Yep. Please continue to 
dive into those because people have to be aware. Right. That's it's very, right. very honest answer. They, I appreciate it. Yeah. Thank you for that. Um, yeah. Let's uh, Before we close, let's get back to Bhakti Fest, which is coming up. Um, if people are hearing this before uh, September, what is it, 4th? It's September 6th to the 6th, 11th in 2017. Yeah. Yeah, Joshua Tree Retreat Center. It's around two hours, two and a half hours from L.A., Mm-hmm. Uh, we have great facilities. We're on 425 acres. A lot of our programs are indoors. We have 24-hour kirtan on, on the main stage that goes uh, every day for four or five days. And we have a second stage called the Hanuman stage where we actually introduce new up-and-coming uh, kirtan sacred music acts, and we focus on that. We have a sound uh, temple that goes on every night from 8 p.m. to like 3, 4 o'clock in the morning where people can come in and lay down and get gonged and 15 vegetarian food booths serving all sorts of great, great food. We're known for our food. We have unlimited reverse osmosis water that's freed for everybody that they can stay hydrated. We have camping for 5,000 people. Uh, this year, we're bringing in 20 new uh, trailers, RVs, that people can rent and stay in there, all air-conditioned. Oh, good. We, we have 300 people on-site in air-conditioned rooms. Um, some of those are still available. Um, and we have, uh, we instituted last couple of years what's called a men's lodge and a women's lodge. Now, the women, women go into the women's lodge, and they're taught by spiritual elder women, on spiritual contemporary subject matters, and we have the same for the men. Hmm. Uh, no women are allowed in the men, and no men are allowed in the women. And there's a reason for that, because it comes down to, we can't talk to our mates or our partners and stuff like that about a lot of stuff. And that's what's causing a lot of the friction in the relationships today. You know, we're just batting heads with our partners, whether they're male, male, female, female, whatever that the thing situation is and we keep on batting heads and we're not able to break through because we don't have people that are going through similar stuff or have been through similar stuff uh, so that we can relate to and talk to so that's why we created these temples these lodges that men go into and women and they've been very well received they're very packed and they're only taught by spiritual elder men or women uh, like that, who have established themselves and are already on deep on the path that they can impart some wisdom to the people coming into their class. Huh, that's really interesting. Now, the the sort of motto of Bhakti Fest is "Be in the Bhav." B H A V. Yeah, right. So be let's in the moment. Be let's in the moment. close with uh, what that means, because I've well, been there and I know what it means, and I've you can feel it; it's palpable. And it's a great experience, but tell us it's, about it. It's the, being in the Bob means being in the moment, being in the love, being in the compassion, being able to absorb, be open. You, you know, this is not a place to, you know, there's thousands of people there, but it's not, you're not coming there to pick up a girl or pick up a guy. You're coming there to really dive into mm-hmm. deepening your side and, and, and building spiritual community. And you have to be able to understand that that's the most important thing we're doing now. Uh, all of us, because if we don't stay together, it's going to be very difficult living mm-hmm. in today's world, especially in America now. Right. Sridhar, uh, one, other, one other question. You mentioned before that you had a book. What's the name of your book? Well, I already did a couple of books. Uh, I, I published the book on Baba in America. Uh, that was the first thing our Center for Spiritual Studies did. 
that was on Bob's tour in America, mm-hmm. uh, which was ab- actually banned from his bookstore subsequently. Meaning, meaning Swami Muktananda. Yeah, Swami Muktananda. Now, last uh, two, the year I came out with my... You know, I, every year uh, I just want to end with this piece about Ramdas. Mm. It's very important. Uh, so through my years of being friends with Ramdas, I actually moved him over to Maui around uh, 12, 15 years ago. He was actually dying in a small commune up in Northern California. Not many people know this. And I went up there to see him, and I said, Bob, you know, these people are mistreating you. They're stealing your money. They're taking your credit cards and putting a pipe in your mouth at 7 in the morning and taking it out at midnight. And he said, Street, I'll mind your own business, you know, and get out of here. And I went home back to Topanga, and I was so upset. I couldn't sleep for three days. I called him back, and I, I had to think about getting him out of there. And what could I do? I, I, I said, all right, I'm going to produce a retreat on Maui, and I'm going to invite him there. So I, I produced a retreat on Maui. It was Ram Dass, and I think it was Shiva Ray or something like that. It was in the early 2000s, uh, 2002, something like that, or four. And uh, he came over. I flew him over. He was on death's doorknob. Uh, and I said, okay, Baba, you're not going to go back. And, and I put him into the hospital. I got him the best nurses and doctors. Got him a house. Uh, I, I moved him around a couple of times, but I got houses donated to us. And I, with with, him, with uh, Wayne Dyer and myself and a couple of other people, we raised 250000 for his care. And he never left the island mm-hmm. at that time. Mm-hmm. That's how he got to Maui. But every year... On our anniversary of, in April, since 2009, I go over that and we sit. I have three cameras going, interviewing, uh, and I'm interviewing him uh, on spiritual contemporary subject matters. It, it, very good stuff for your listeners who are just learning or becoming interested in spirituality. Uh, these are great segues. You might want to watch them yourself. They're really, mm-hmm. really mm-hmm. informative. You know, we get a lot of listeners on YouTube uh, listening to them. So they're shown also at BhaktiFest, but people can get a preview of what they are by going on to our website, BhaktiFest.com. You can also buy tickets at that, uh, at that website, and you can also see these Ramdas videos up on YouTube. Great. Sridhar, thank you so much. Great. Thank you, guys. I appreciate it, and let's do it again sometime. Uh, okay, will. have a great time, and I'll see you around. Great. Okay. And, uh, good luck with BhaktiFest this year.